Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. So we're rapidly approaching uh, the summer. Uh, Your temperatures are are rising. Uh, Many of you are probably getting excited for all the fun things that you have planned. Um, For some of you, it may be more um, more of the same. Uh, Just the AC may be kicking out like tons of uh, cold. Uh, Some of us have a whole bunch of ducks to get in a row. Um, Neat little rows. Um, Sending kids off to college. So lots of stuff for this summer coming up. But uh, for me, summer is associated um, with a lot of swimming, usually. Um, uh, But I'm a hesitant swimmer. Um, If the water's the slightest bit cold, um, I kind of hem and haw for a long time before getting in. I don't really want to take that little dip. Um, So once I'm I'm in, I'm I'm always really like I'm enjoying it. Um, But it just takes that that initial shock um, of the cold. I just don't like it. Um, so I tentatively I test the water, you know, one toe down to the ankle, sit on the side for a little while and just kick my feet a little bit. Yeah, maybe not. Maybe I won't do this today. Um, I'm the same way with uh, roller coasters. Um, yeah, really theme parks in general. Um, once Kim finally convinces me to get on the ride, I'm enjoying myself, I'm having a blast. But, you know, I could just as soon leave it if she doesn't kind of push me into doing it. Um, and it's really, it's that, you know, taking that, that, that plunge to kind of mix the metaphors. I just, I don't want to do it. I don't want to commit. It, it just, I'd just as soon not. Um, Kim, on the other hand, is committed and excited for both. Um, she's all in. She's wondering what in the world is wrong with me, why I can't just enjoy it right from the start. Um, and in any case, today we're going to be talking um, about something else that often takes some work before we can get into it. Um, as we look to Christ and the way he suffered, uh, we're called to put, away, put, put on a resolve um, that's like his. And so let's, with that, turn uh, to the passage. Uh, let's see if I can back up. Oh, sorry. Sharp. Okay. Uh, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live life, uh, live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Okay, so that seems a little bit better. Let's pray, and then we'll dive right in. Father... I ask that you would be with us um, as we look in this passage. Um, 
that we would have a clear vision of the sin that you've rescued us from or the cost it took to deal with that sin. God, help us to be disciples who follow you, who put every every passion um, on the scale to determine whether or not it leads away from you or towards you. Father, may, I be, may, may you be our greatest treasure. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so the church that Peter is writing to um, is under a lot of strain. They're experiencing persecution, without a doubt. Now, it isn't, it isn't tortures. It's not prison, necessarily. It's not even death, usually, um, though that is coming, and Peter is trying to prepare them for a very possible future. Rather, they're being talked about. Uh, they're slandered. They're being ostracized from public life. They're being blamed for the ills of civilization. Um, they can feel a push from their neighbors to give up, to, to come back to normal, to do the things that everybody else is doing, uh, to not stand out or, or be pushing back, uh, to really just align with the times, to go with the flow. And add to this, you know, this is, like, uh, if not the first, maybe even the second generation um, of Christians, you know, witnesses to the ministry of Christ are, are dying. They're, they're, they're dying off. And so this, this group is, you know, wondering, is it worth it to follow Christ? Um, is the strain and the pressure and the rejection of the world, is it really worth it? Um, and we're going to find what Peter says is that following Jesus is always worth it because Jesus is, is worthy. He's something to be treasured above any earthly accolade or praise. Um, and that's going to bring us right to chapter 4, verse 1. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking Peter points us first back um, to 3.18, where he reminded us that Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Everything we're going to say from here on out, we're going to talk a lot about our actions and about what we do, is rooted in this, that Christ already suffered. That work is done. And so before we even get to our responsibility and how we look as citizens of the kingdom, we have to focus on, we have to acknowledge that Jesus is the one who, made, who paid the sacrifice. He did that. That's that, that something we could not do for ourselves. But continuing on, he says that suffering was always part of what it looked like to be a Christian. Peter tells them that they're to arm themselves with Christ's own way of thinking. So it's not, when we talk about arm yourselves, and, and the title for our sermon is rather, you know, kind of aggressive, but we're not talking about arming ourselves with worldly tools, worldly weapons, or whatever. Peter tells us that we're going to prepare for the conflict by resolving to suffer, by going into the conflict with intentionality to follow Jesus, and that regardless of the cost. So there's a difference between uh, taking suffering as it comes, uh, bearing up under pressure, and you can do that well, but there's a difference between that and resolving beforehand to suffer regardless of the cost. It comes down to, to action. Resolve leads to action in line with that resolve. We do the things that are going to make that resolve a reality. Whereas if we simply you know, take suffering as it comes without that resolve, we find ourselves in situations that we weren't prepared for and we haven't really thought through and done the things that will help us to deal with them well. So rather than looking for God to show up where we are, we are gonna be placed, we, we need to start putting ourselves where God is. 
Peter likely remembers a particular interaction with Jesus, a time about six days before seeing Jesus all white and shiny. It's what we often call the transfiguration. Peter had just confessed Jesus as the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus had commended him for his confession, his response to divine revelation, how it was a model for the rest of the disciples and ultimately us as the church. But just a little bit after that, Jesus began sharing his resolve with Peter and the disciples. Matthew puts it like this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You can find that in Matthew 16, uh, 21 through 23, if you're interested later. Do, do you hear Jesus' words for Peter? You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I, I'm sure that has stuck with Peter. He saw his master purposely head toward Jerusalem, eyes on a goal, to receive an unjust sentence that led to his humiliation, torture, and death. If anybody showed resolve, it was Jesus. He stuck with it. He stuck with us without fail. And now Peter turns to this struggling church and tells them to do exactly that, to do the same thing. Set your minds on the things of God. Go into it with resolve, counting the cost, knowing how it identifies you with Christ, how it allows you to, to share in that glory Christ is ultimately bringing. Peter continues in verse 1 saying, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What an encouragement. You know, suffering will rid us of sin once and for all. Okay, maybe he didn't say that. It's just in jest. Uh, but it won't be the first time someone has run up against this verse and started kind of scratching their heads. No, Peter isn't telling uh, this church that their suffering has ripped the sin from their experience, much as that might be nice. Um, he isn't advising churches to create conflict with the surrounding world so that suffering might perfect them. Rather, he's talking about the way in which they are already suffering. I already mentioned it, uh, but the Christian persecution here doesn't seem to be physical. It appears to be more verbal, more situational. It, it's not unlike the kind of person, persecution <clears throat> becoming more mainstream for Christians today. We don't necessarily face beatings and trial necessarily. It's more an arm's length from society, a pushing away. These Christians have voluntarily left the normal cultural associations and settings. That They aren't participating in the guilds. That might have required them to perform pagan sacrifices. They aren't going out and getting drunk at parties, even though they used to do that. And it, it actually you know, cuts into their advancement in society to avoid those things. They aren't participating in the emperor cult and other practices that would assure that so the pagan gods would you know, take care of the land and take care of the city and take care of the people. They're, they're not involved in that. They aren't involving themselves in idolatrous sexual misadventures, the, the, the temple cults. So they've gone away from all of that. They've developed a new community. And they're growing into the body envisioned by Peter, which we saw last night, full of unity, sympathy, brotherly love, tender hearts, and humility. Together, they're looking more and more like Christ. And this isn't sitting well with their neighbors who are stuck in their old ways. 
It's their stopping of these sinful escapades that has led to them being persecuted. It's not just they're being persecuted, it's I'm actively doing God's will, and therefore the world goes, nope, you can't do that here. So Peter isn't saying that they're sinless because of suffering. He, he isn't saying that suffering leads to sinless perfection. He's saying that their suffering shows their already present commitment, their resolve to reject a life of sin. It's visual evidence of their resolve to follow Jesus. And so as we read this, we are asked to do the same thing. Do we suffer as a result of a commitment to follow Christ, or do we suffer because we're following our own passions, pleasures, desires? So we turn, we turn now to verses 2 to 3. Um, first, we saw that Peter was encouraging the church that the way they are suffering is proof in the pudding that they're serious about a new life imitating Jesus. Peter now moves to offer them a replacement for the sin that they were engaged in before. They don't just reject the things um, that used to define their lives. They replace their, these disordered passions with something else. Uh, Peter says it this way, Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. I hope that you're hearing just a little bit of Matthew 6, Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Peter sets the rest of their lives before them and says, what are you going to do with this? Are you going to run after those things that crippled you previously, that earned God's just anger? Or are you going to treasure Christ? As followers of Jesus, we, we have that same daily struggle. Um, are we going to live to please ourselves, to worship our own happiness, to seek our own purposes, or are we going to follow Christ? I'm going to say that again and again. Are we going to follow Christ? Are we going to make pleasing God our first and foremost goal or put someone or something in his place? Um, now, I don't really have an illustration here, but it will be helpful. I'm going to paint a picture for you. Uh, you can close your eyes if you want to. Just don't fall asleep. Um, but I want you to picture a, a throne room. It's got a set of stairs leading up to a throne. Underneath, the throne, in that section below the stairs, is it's where all the treasure is, all the passions, okay? It's where all your desires are. And as long as at that throne room, that, that throne at the top is where Christ is hopefully sitting. He's directing your passions. And all the other, the, all the passions are submitted. They're underneath the throne, underneath Christ's rule, and that's all well and good. But what ends up happening over time these treasures, these passions try to escape. So they go from under the throne, and they kind of go to the top of the, the bottom of the stairs, and they start stepping one by one up the stairs until they can finally hopefully take over the seat, take over the throne room, and kind of lead your life. And so our call is then as believers to make sure that all of our passions stay in the right place. They're not ascending the stairs of our heart to take control. Makes sense as an illustration so far? So that's, that's anything. I mean, most of our passions, you know, he's going to talk about a whole bunch of passions or a whole bunch of things that they're engaged in that are just flat-out sin. But before we get to flat-out sin and our engagement with the world, most of our passions are things that are good as long as they're in control. The desire for a spouse or a significant other is perfectly fine as long as it's, it's under the staircase, under the throne, submitted to Christ, 
But once you let it start ascending the stairs, now we start having a problem. It directs our steps instead of Christ. Same thing, just a relationship or our education, our reputation, our job, any of these things, they're good passions. They can be used by God when they're submitted, but the moment we let them start walking up the stairs, we have to start going, okay, what needs to change here? What needs to stop? How does God want us to deal with this passion in the right way? Now, just so you know, not my illustration, um, an illustration from a class I recently took, um, but I thought a really good one for what we're dealing with right here. So, but not mine. No, not plagiarizing here. So, uh, turning then to verse 3, uh, we get just a taste of sarcasm from Peter, which I appreciate. He says, For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Um, you've spent too long already on the mess of godless time, energy, and joy sucks, he says. And partway through, I want to point out something that's maybe easy to miss. Um, his comment is what the Gentiles want to do. So we might have our minds race immediately to like Jew versus Gentile. But that's not really what Peter is trying to do here. Um, what he's actually trying to do um, is point out that they are the new people of God. There's this subtle realignment of it's not Jew and Gentile anymore. It's the people of God, the church, and those outside the church. So he reminds them that they're the people. They're a church and not just individual Christians. So as we deal with this, you know, this, they're under stress, they're under persecution, they have one more comfort beyond the, the visual image of sacrifice. They have the church. They have those in the people of God around them suffering with them. They're not isolated when they see that they have one another even though they have been ostracized by the world. And neither are we. That's why we have the church. That's why we have one another, is that we are reminders to each other of what Christ has done, what Christ is doing. So the world may put us at arm's length, may call us names, may take our property, take our freedoms, maybe even our lives eventually. But we draw closer to one another, and all of us together closer to the Son, closer to the Father. Now Peter turns from his focus on the church and draws their attentions to the world. And that's what we're going to jump into next. So uh, for a moment, so let's look at 4.4. Um, we'll see that there is both a self-condemning orientation in the world and a self-condemning response. Um, so let's look at that first part of verse 4. Peter writes, With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. Uh, Peter reflects on the world's surprise that we don't run and do these things that provide them pleasure and satisfaction. And I'd like to point out um, two features of this surprise. First, um, the word Peter uses for surprise is not, probably not what we expect. When you read surprise, you might think like emotional shock. It's not really what he has in mind here. It's more of a conscious bewilderment. He describes them really as strangers or foreigners. It's the kind of thing where you have somebody who shows up in town who doesn't know the ways of town. He doesn't know how you do things around there. He doesn't do the things that are expected. Um, in other words, the, the actions seem alien and unfamiliar and strange. They know these people. They lived with them. And yet, they don't really know them anymore. They're different. Uh, the second, um, there's an amazing play on words going on here, which reminds of the Noah incident we were talking about um, in a prior week. 
um, we're asked to imagine what it was like to watch Noah doing his work, totally, the, the people, sorry, not Noah himself, the people watching Noah, um, but they're totally confused at what he's committed himself to. Why are you making a big, huge boat out in the middle of, of nowhere? They wonder why Noah won't join with them. He's putting all his time into this boat. Peter uses the word plunge into the same flood of sinful behavior. He wants to, he's not trying to leave the image unnoticed. He's being very, very clear. And so sometimes we miss it, but as, as you'd have read this text, that this is what they're going to see. They're going to see this image again of the world watching Noah going, what are you doing? Is it really worth this? Is, did God really tell you that? That's the picture we see. So Peter envisions a world happily jumping in uh, the swelling sea that God has sent to consume wayward creation. Peter's point is that their whole orientation is foreign to the things of God. When they see us respond to life's troubles with grace, mercy, sympathy, patience, they're left with a dropped jaw and a bewildered expression. It threatens their comfort, their carefully constructed facades of happiness and peace. And that probably sounds a little harsh. But we were once there as well. We don't come to this ignorant of what it's like to be rooted in sin. We've been there. If not for Christ, we would still be there. We know what it's like to have our orientation completely at odds with God's will. And so we need to come to Scripture and, and read it as Jesus intends for us. So when we're faced with trials, we, we lean into Christ and in his church as God intended. When their world begins to crumble, when these sinful passions fail to measure up to their hopes and dreams, when people fail them, they don't have those things to turn to. So it's natural for them to be bewildered when they see something different. They don't know how to handle it, and they shouldn't know how to handle it. It's completely fair. Often we, we judge a little bit harshly in that, that we're like, why don't they just understand and turn? And God says, no, it, it's natural. Without my spirit to motivate, to turn, to move, it's a, that's a natural way to respond in a sin-broken life. Again, it's going to be this orientation that puts them at odds with God's kingdom. So that's the self-condemning orientation. Um, at the end of 4.4, we get the next picture, and, and it says, the natural result of all this is what Peter continues with in verse 4. He says, and they malign you. Uh, they accuse these believers of all sorts of things. They're a threat to the peace. They lack morals. Uh, they be, they're, they're a threat to good functioning society. Um, they just flat out call them evil. And unless we, you know, kind of push that back to that was Rome, that was the first century, um, we have tons of examples of this in our own time. Um, just imagine what it's been like under COVID for churches to encourage public gathering for worship, to put a priority on worship. Now, we're not saying don't do it safely, but we're saying worship is so important it's essential to use the word that's so common. It's essential. But to have the world then go, you obviously don't care about people's health and safety. What Worship isn't worth it. Do it in your home. Do it in private. A complete orientation of values problem. How do we read the Bible? Um, we're encouraged to read the Bible very scientifically, to isolate down individual atoms, to not read it as a whole, to look at the history and be doubtful and suspicious. 
it's a whole orientation of the world. Are we going to orient ourselves towards Christ's way of reading, or are we going to orient ourselves toward the world's way of reading? Stances, we have you know, any number of stances, whether, or, whether it's BLM, CRT, um, whether we talk about homosexual marriage, gender roles. Um, you stand up for those things as a Christian, you should expect, and more and more as time proceeds, business loss, harassment, ostracization from the learning academy, from the from education field. These things are a threat to the world as it is, and the world reacts. Now, I do want to say, let's make sure <laughs> that when they condemn us, it's for our allegiance to Christ and not our allegiance to a political party or for patriotism. Our allegiance is to Christ. That's what we should be being condemned for because of our relationship with the body of Christ and for our patterning our lives after Christ, not because we're attached to something else that has got our attention. Uh, another example, they just reject wisdom. If a Christian says, hey, I'm going to behave in a certain way towards women when they come, I'm going to you know, guard myself and be safe so that I can guard their reputation and my reputation, the world rejects that and says, that's not about reputation, that's about devaluing women. Complete orientation shift, once again. A wrong response. And ultimately, that kind of response that just rejects wisdom, rejects the spirit working, it's a rejection of the spirit. And that leads us to the next thing, which is Peter's words here to malign aren't just to, to denigrate. Um, it's ultimately the same thing as to blaspheme. They're basically saying, you know, it should remind us of Matthew 12, 30 through 32. You have the Pharisees come accusing Jesus of casting out demons, not through anything, not, th not through anything, but through the power of the devil. You basically say, you know, Jesus is out there casting out demons, spirit-empowered, and the Pharisees say, nope, it's the devil. It, it just baffles the mind. Jesus responds, that's flat-out blasphemy. It, it, it's, it's basically calling the Spirit's work, God's own work, the work of the devil. And that's when he's saying, you know, it can't be forgiven. It's, a, it's, a, it's the unforgivable sin. It's because it's a defined, resolved disbelief. So we pair this, this idea of we're supposed to resolve ourselves to suffer, to follow Christ. They, the Pharisees had a resolved disbelief. They were not going to accept that what Jesus was doing was spirit-led. Ultimately, the world is doing something similar to that. We don't want to get into whether or not we want to call them blasphemers. That's probably not appropriate. But they are doing something very similar. They're redefining what is good, what is spirit-filled, and they're redefining it as evil. The world's inability to respond properly to the work of God condemns it. It, it condemns it, even without Jesus having to say a word. Their rejection of his wisdom and his truth is condemnation. And that leads us on to the next section, um, that we have a gospel-based accounting. So, so all of that, the world's mockery and derision, it, it can be discouraging. Um, so Peter reminds his readers of what they've learned in the gospel. Not only does the world stand self-condemned in the rejection of God and his people, there remains a day when all will give an account to God. So, in 4.5, Peter writes, But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. When Peter mentions him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, uh, we have two options. Um, 
most likely. He could be referring to God the Son, Jesus, um, or he could be meaning God the Father. Um, it doesn't actually change the ultimate meaning either way, um, but I think that Jesus has in mind really the Father um, as the judge of living and the dead, uh, based on what has come before in chapter 3. Peter reminds them that this short life is not the end of the matter. The Father is waiting to judge. The world's jeers and insults and worse don't go unnoticed in heaven's courtroom. God the Father sees everything. He knows our human hearts. Jesus loves his own, and they're going to be vindicated. You know, the, the, the things that they go through, they're, they're noticed. God is watching. He's paying attention. Every tear we shed following Christ is going to be met with his tender embrace, and that means there's a judgment coming. There's a judgment coming. So we also have a gospel-based posture, and that comes in 4.6. Um, as we reach the end of our passage, Peter gives us an apology for his ministry. And by that, I don't mean like, and I'm sorry for his ministry, but a defense, an apology in the defense sense. And he says, for this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Um, many have read verse 6 and have struggled with the, those who are dead. Um, you actually, if you heard me, I actually said now. Um, that's something that some translations do. The CSB is one of them that does to try to make it very, very clear. But a lot of trans translations just say those who are dead. Um, and so they, they can read that. And connecting it with 319 might, might lead some to consider that this is a reference to some after-death opportunity uh, for salvation or, or a sense of Christian universalism. Um, that would be not an appropriate way to necessarily read this, 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 um, this particular uh, phrase. Um, but if we, especially if we think about it in the rest of the letter, um, we can see that it runs contrary to Peter's whole line of reasoning, his purpose for writing. Uh, he wants them to remain faithful here and now, recognizing the security of their future inheritance. He's not suggesting that they can turn away now under the stress and pick salvation up later after death. That's not his point. So it, it's to read it that way is going to, to not really follow with Peter's logic. Uh, he's also not contradicting Jesus, who tells us um, in Matthew 7, 13, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those few, oh, those who find it are few. So this is not teaching some sense of, of universalism as after death, you know, Christ preaching is, is finally, you know, sufficient to save everyone. Um, instead, knowing that there's a final judgment, that eternity, eternity hangs in the balance, Peter tells the church what he is likely told to those he shared the gospel with. Why do we preach? We preach so that you might live. We know it likely means temporary suffering, and that's a cost we're prepared uh, to, 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 to engage in. That's, that's what we're prepared to do. We know the world's opinion. We know the world's judgment. But pleasing God is more important than the praise of the world. God has appointed one, Jesus, and we can do no better than follow him wholeheartedly. Or put another way, since there will come a final accounting, a posture of attention to the Spirit is the natural Christian response despite the negative judgment of the watching world. That's Peter's point. So friend, if you've not placed your burden on Christ, taking his easy yoke, I, I do want to extend 
the truth of the gospel to you this morning. I'm hoping that you've seen this morning the way that sin blinds us. We, we put our passions, they're sitting on the throne of our lives. It's impossible to please God that way. And what we desperately need is a new heart that desires the things that God desires, that is responsive to God's voice. We can search the fields of medicine and psychology. We won't find a way to create a new heart. We can attempt to silence our guilt, just the pain of life, grief through substances, through bodily pleasures. They don't last. Uh, and ultimately, our bodies betray us, so there's no end in it. Pleasing the right people may make our lives easier for a moment, but it doesn't win us standing with God at all. Eternity it doesn't get us anywhere. I don't know what particular blend of desires make up your struggle, because we're all slightly different. We all have different things that power us. But I know Jesus is the answer to every sin every idol. He's proven himself faithful to me and many of my brothers and sisters in Christ. I've seen it. And we have the example of scripture pointing out to the witnesses the testimony of what Christ has done. He lived a sin-free life. He died unjustly but willingly on the cross. And he rose from the grave that we might have life. The same kind of life in the spirit that Peter is talking about. We can have that starting here and now. It's not for the far future. It's life lived now. Today, won't you trust him? Let him define what a good life really looks like. Repent of sin, your sin. Take it personally. And the devastation that it's leaving in its wake in your family, in your friends, in your community. Reject the judgment of the world. Don't try to please them, but find Jesus, his welcoming embrace. I won't promise it'll be easy. In fact, I can pretty much guarantee it won't that there will be a cost. But following Christ is worth it, and God is worth treasuring. Brothers and sisters, this morning, I'm really only going to ask you to consider whether you look different from the surrounding world. Can they tell a difference? Can they see that you're committed at all? If they can, praise God. I'm not asking you to gloat over the difference, um, and, I, and I certainly don't want you to be looking for the evil in your neighbor. Do the values of the kingdom shine through in our conduct? That's what Peter has already remarked on in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3. Does the call to follow Christ cost us anything in the realm of worldly pursuits, worldly associations, worldly reputation? Does the love of Christ, the desire to please him, to find our greatest treasure in him, redefine community in your life? Or does your definition of community remain unchanged after coming to Christ? Can people look at your relationships and find reason to wonder at what God is doing? In our passage today, Peter is calling us to stand fast, to be encouraged even when the world slanders and judges us for our faithful discipleship. He knows and wants us to be assured that there's a coming day of judgment a final vindication for the people of God. Will you test every desire of your heart, every passion that lives within you, and submit it to Christ? Will you run after God's will? Will you daily confront sin and whatever passions seek to reassert themselves? That's what Peter's looking at.